0: My father owned a business that made machinery for the electroplating industry, and uh, I, I remember a conversation between my parents when I was a little child that really stuck in my mind. My father came home one night from work, and he said that a man who worked in the shop, uh, and if I remember correctly, he had a military injury of some kind where his, he, could, he had no feeling in his lower leg on the right side of his foot. He had complete function of his leg, he could walk and everything, but he just had no feeling. He was working in the shop with some molten level and metal, and some of it spilled off the table and fell on his boot, and he didn't know it. And it was only later, like at lunchtime or something, that he looked down and realized that he had quite a problem and he had to go to the hospital, and it was a rather serious wound. And I remember I was probably six years old playing in the family room while my parents were talking about their day. And it was one of those small realizations in life where my world expanded. Like suddenly I realized people cannot feel pain when they should. I'd never conceived of such a notion before that. Now later in life I learned that there are people who have the opposite problem. There are people who feel pain when they shouldn't. It's it's called idiopathic neuropathy. And we usually call it nerve pain. And nerve pain is where A person's nerves endings that are meant to sense pain are sending inappropriate, wrong signals to the brain. You you can't simply say it's all in their head because there is an actual nerve problem that is sensing pain when there's no source of pain. And so the signals are inappropriate and they're excessive and people may feel everything from just slight discomfort to intense pain with absolutely no cause. And the fact is, It seems in this world, some people cannot feel pain when they should, and some other people feel pain when there's no reason. Now, it seems to me there's a great parallel to that in the emotional, spiritual realm of life. This is true of many of our emotions that don't exactly read the signals the way they're supposed to. And the one I want to think about this morning is peace. Peace is that sense of tranquility that we all long to have. This feeling that despite whatever difficulties there are going on in my world, I feel tranquil. I feel a sense of calm inside. We all desire to have that. No one wants to live with an inner sense of turmoil without relief. And so we want to have peace. And it seems that in this world, we sometimes feel or don't feel peace in the wrong ways. I remember once talking to a man as he was facing death, and he said to me these words, I have made my peace with God. Now, I sensed that that wasn't accurate. I wasn't sure that he had really made his peace with God. Obviously, I couldn't see into his heart. I couldn't make any, any real determination, but he had had no spiritual discernible interest up to that point in life, and from that point on, he didn't seem to have any What I felt that he was saying was he had come to accept death. You know, there was a famous book written in the 60s. Some of us had to read it in college. And it was by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's entitled On Death and Dying. And it describes the five stages of death. If a person experiences a death that takes a period of time, they may move through all five stages, starting with denial. They deny that they really are sick. And ending with acceptance. And all I sensed was this person had come to that point where he was no longer fighting it, he was no longer angry, he he felt at peace with himself, and he used the words peace with God to describe that. But I wasn't sure those were the best words to use. Other times I've talked with people who are struggling with a sense that God is angry at them, in some vague sense. God must not be happy with them over their life, their direction, the way they feel, whatever it is. And as we've talked, I can't seem to discern any reason why they would feel that way. There seems to be no lack of understanding or faith or feeling that would cause them to have inside this turmoil that that doesn't allow them to feel a sense of peace when it comes to relationship with God. And the fact is, some people cannot feel peace when they should. And other people feel peace when maybe they shouldn't. And I want to think about this statement that's in this passage. It's in verse 3. It's um, a statement that many people have heard, even if they don't understand the context in which it's found. It says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, this was written by the prophet of Isaiah to provide a sense of encouragement and comfort and hope to believers because of this fact that we do not always experience the emotion of peace in the way that we should. Sometimes we find peace when we really shouldn't, and other times we feel no peace when the basis for peace is there and all we need to do is grab hold of it. Because that's true... The prophet states this conviction that what God desires and is capable of giving to his people is a peace that is true and lasting. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And I want to think about this verse for a few minutes and just divide it into two categories as we think together. The first we'll call the basis of peace, and the second one is the experience of peace. This one, the basis of peace, is is an objective, it's like a fact, while the experience of peace is something that's subjective. It's more an experience or a feeling that may change from day to day. I want to note that this verse in its context is part of an important little section in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a difficult prophecy to understand, but the first half of the book is is where Isaiah looks forward from his own day and he tells the people of his day in the 8th century B.C., what they are going to experience if they continue to live in faithless rebellion against him. There's judgments in the first half of the book on various nations around them, but the greatest judgments come on Israel, and essentially he is saying, if you don't listen, the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to be defeated by the Babylonians. In fact, it didn't happen for 200 years, but he was beginning to warn the people that this is what's going to happen. And suddenly, in in the middle of this, in chapters 24 through 27, there's a little section that's sometimes called by commentators Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. The word apocalypse is the Greek name of the book of Revelation. Uh, The word means unveil something, to reveal something, uncover it, to reveal it, revelation. And this is like the book of Revelation. And what happens is, In the midst of all these judgments and this immediate call to the people to repent and turn from their sinful reliance on foreigners and foreign gods and all these different things they're trusting in, he suddenly turns to the end, the very end, the distant future, that point when God makes everything right, new heavens and new earth kind of end that the Bible speaks of. And and he says, here's what's going to happen ultimately. This is what you're looking forward to. It's four chapters long, but in chapter 26, it says at the beginning, in this day, that's a statement four times in this section, in that day, here's what will happen, but he says in that day when God makes everything new, this psalm is going to be sung in the land of Judah, and then he goes on he records, this is what the people of God are going to sing in the day when they experience fully everything that God intends, when he makes all sin, uh, he takes care of all sin and he wraps up all things in the new heavens and new earth, and it sings this song. But what's interesting is in the chapter where he's reciting words that the people will sing in joy because of redemption and everything that God has done, there's a few points where he inserts a statement, and verse 3 is one of them. They're mostly made to God, and it's like he's he's telling them in the middle of describing this worship in the distant future, he tells them, here's what you can rely upon, and one of them is verse 3, the first one. He inserts this statement. You, God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's stated as um, kind of a generally understood truth. This is what God does. This is who God is. This is how he works. And, And it's important because this word that we're meant to grab hold of about the distant future is meant to come right into the presence and we take hold of it. You keep the person in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This word peace takes us to the very heart of the gospel, the Christian message. Now, if you want to understand what peace means in the Bible and its of sense, you have to start with the most uncomfortable truth in the Bible. It's called the teaching about sin, the doctrine of sin. The Bible teaches an understanding of sin that is unparalleled in any other religion, any philosophy. No, no human being could have come up With this, I don't think, it's presented in the Bible as God's own diagnosis on the human condition. Sin um, is a deeper, more serious problem than we could ever imagine. In fact, the Bible describes our condition, born into this world, apart from something God would do, as a state of war with God. We are born into this world with a bent inside of us that will turn us away from God in his way so that we will always seek to go around him to get whatever it is that we want. It's described this way in scripture. You could look at both sides of this warfare. On one side is us, and our side might be the word rebellion. We are in open rebellion against God. We, human beings, have a stubborn determination to make life work We have a stubborn determination to live without God and to find whatever it is we're looking for, including peace, without God. And apart from something he would do to change that condition that we find ourselves in, we will persist in it. We will stubbornly continue to try to find life without God. We'll seek our own way. At our best, we will use him to try to get the things that we long for in life. At worst, we'll stick his finger in our eye and say by our behavior, we know what's right. We make our own destiny. We'll make our own way. Either way, uh, we're determined to make our life work in a fallen world. That's our side of this warfare. God's side might be described by the word enmity. It's uncomfortable for people when we use that word, yet the Bible uses it, to describe God's fixed determination, his um, conviction that he will not Let us go on in our stubborn rebellion. God is committed to frustrating our stubborn rebellion. So like a wise parent, he will either allow us to experience the natural and logical consequences of our foolish choices as we go through life, or he will, like a wise parent in other circumstances, seek to thwart them so that we don't get what it is that we're looking for apart from him. The idea is that left to our own devices, born into this world, following the dictates of our human nature, we will inevitably turn away from God and seek other things unless God intervenes in some way. As long as we persist having things our own way, we will turn away from him. Now, we may take the path in doing that, turning away from him, of open rebellion. Some people do that. That is Probably most characteristic of the generation in which we find ourselves. I, I've, there's a commercial on it; kind of grinds on me, but it's an older woman dancing, and you see her. That that doesn't bother me, by the way. But an older woman dancing, and you know, you, you It's kind of like an X-ray. You see her bones, and that you know the statement. It, it's a British. They always use British when they want to get to us, you know, and tell us something that we really want to hear. <laughs> Defiance is in our bones. You know, defiance is in our bones. That is the nature of the human race, and that's the characteristic of the generation in which we live. We make our own way. But when we take the path of open rebellion, what we want to do is show that our way is better than God's. He doesn't know what is best for us. We can figure it out out on our own, and so we engage in behaviors that we selfishly believe will give us what it is we want, whatever... Pleasure or joy or accomplishment that we're looking for. And as we live in open rebellion, if we choose that path, we don't really need Jesus because we think there's nothing to be forgiven of. Now, the fact is, that's one way of rebelling against God, but there is another path that is, at least in the teaching of Jesus, very clearly a different way of doing the same thing. And it's a path you might call conformity, moral conformity, Vague religiosity. This was my background. It's the idea that um, we will do those things that we believe God has told us to do in order to win his favor. We will be a good person in general. We'll go to church and maybe read the Bible and be kind to other people and not misuse them, at least in our own mind. So when we pray or we give or we serve, We're sure behind it that God is pleased with what we're doing. And when you follow the path of moral conformity, you believe that you're conforming to what God wants, and so how could he ever have anything against you? On this side, rebellion, you believe there's no sin to be forgiven of. On this side, you believe there is sin, but you're not a sinner. After all, if you're doing what God requires, why would he be mad at you? In either case, you understand you don't need Jesus because either you have nothing to be forgiven of, or you don't need him because you're already doing what it is God requires. Those are the two ways in which we can go around God to get what we want, and in either one, we don't come to God and find forgiveness. Now, it is at this point that the gospel comes in, the message of the Christian faith. It says that God, in his love, because of this rebellion that is either open or it's characterized by a life of conformity, Either way, because we are not looking to God for forgiveness and peace, we are trying to get something on our own that God comes in, and because of his love, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And through that, he seeks to restore the estrangement, the state of warfare between us and him. When he died on the cross, Jesus took our place, and he suffered for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, as we just sang in some songs, And what God does is he invites us to come to him through Jesus' sacrifice. And when we come trusting in Christ alone, we are restored to God. When we trust in Christ, uh, we find that God accepts us. He receives us back into relationship with him. The, The estrangement is removed. The warfare has ended. And that's the meaning of that verse that we started with this morning, the whole service. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel is the way that God reconciles rebellious sinners to himself. The basis on which he does that is the death of Christ. And the way in which we receive the benefits of the death of Christ is faith, that is, trust, We trust that God accepts us and acquits our rebellion solely because of Jesus. And reconciliation occurs when, first, we agree with God about his diagnosis of our condition. That's what repentance is, essentially. We agree that we are, in fact, bent away from him, that we will seek our own way if we're left to ourselves. We will not look to him when we we recognize that and we trust in Christ that he was enough sufficient in every way for God to accept us, we find acceptance. The enmity is removed. We are restored to relationship with God. It it says it in that same chapter where it says we're justified by faith and have peace with God in these words later in the chapter. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That is, his resurrection life becomes the source of life-giving power to live in a different way, one that does not rely on ourselves and our own direction. So the gospel is presented in the Bible as the only way of peace. It is the source of all peace. It's the the source out of which this peace with God is is brought into perfect alignment in God's purposes so that we might carry that out in every other part of life. It's, It's about our condition of sinfulness that we cannot cure. No amount of goodness will cure it because we'll always be pulled back by this inner bent away from him. So it's about our condition. It's about God's provision for our condition. And it's about our acceptance of what God has provided, Jesus Christ. Now, everything that I've said up to this point is an objective truth. It's a statement of fact. For those who believe, it says, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it might be obvious to you that what the Bible says is an objective fact is not always experienced by us at every moment of our lives in the way that we would like to. World War II, at least in Europe, ended... um, on a specific day, May 8th, 1945. It was about six months later that it ended in the Pacific, uh, the war against Japan. But it ended in Reims, France, when the high commanding general of the German high command, whose name was Jodl, General Jodl, met with the representative of the supreme allied commander, who was General Eisenhower. He, he was the chief of all the allied forces that fought against Germany from the west and the chief of the Soviet high command, the one who led from the east. He surrendered to those two people. The document's very interesting to read. It's a a statement of complete, unconditional surrender, laying down of all arms and placing themselves at the disposal of whatever the Allied and Soviet powers choose to do. Now, that surrender brought peace. It was a peace that was final and complete, and lasting. World War II has never been fought again, but it needed to be experienced. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes now. What, what about the experience of peace? What does it mean for us to enter into this and experience it ourselves? Not as much is known about the process of what happened after World War II as is known about World War II. You can turn on television and it's like Channel 112 or something, it's constant. You know, things about World War II. It's interesting to watch if you like that sort of thing. But not the things that happened after we don't really understand. But what happened after is equally as remarkable as what happened during World War II. And it was mostly the United States. Because the other Allied powers had been decimated by the war. It had been fought on their uh, territory, both France and Great Britain, the two greatest of the Allied powers. We were in a state of relative unharm, even though we'd lost half a million soldiers. And so, what happened is, at incredible cost to ourselves, we helped Germany rebuild. And what we were doing at that point was restoring a relationship that had been broken by the war, in which the war had completely decimated it. I was born after the war, but my older sister was born during the war, towards the end, and she uh, grew up with children whose fathers had been killed in Europe. Now, just imagine, you know, the, the devastation to a family where a soldier is killed and there are children left. It goes on for the rest of their lives, and and that you can multiply by millions all over the world and all the ways that it happened. The, the relationship had been so broken beyond any thought of reparation, but what we did, and this we ought to recognize, the tremendous thing that was done by our fathers and grandfathers. It is one of the greatest acts in the history of the world was we turned Germany, our implacable enemy, into what is today the strongest nation in Europe and one of our greatest allies in democracy. All we were doing at that point is we were applying what was won on May 8, 1945. Arms had been laid down. Peace was established but that peace had to be worked out in the way people thought and the way that they lived over two generations to get to the point where we're at now. And that's what I want to think about. The basis of peace when it comes to the peace that really matters, that lasting eternal peace, what it calls here perfect peace. The basis of peace has been established. It was done at the cross. God made peace through the blood of his cross. It says in Ephesians chapter 2. But the experience of that peace is a process that we go on through our lives. It's, it's like, just as uh, the years that followed World War II was between uh, a state where things already had been declared peaceful, but not yet was peace really established. It was the interim period where they were establishing the peace that had been won. In the same way, you might think of the whole Christian era, the time between Christ's first coming and the second coming, as a period between the not, or the already, and the not yet. Already we have forgiveness, not yet do we fully experience it. Already we have justification, not yet do we stand at the judgment seat of God and hear his forgiveness being announced to us. So we, we know we have these things, but they're not yet established. And this life is a life where we are called to progressively establish and experience that, to progressively experience it inside ourselves, and then to seek to work it out in the way we relate to other people. The experience of peace, unlike the objective fact of peace that was won at the cross, is a process. It can only be the result of the objective peace that was won. The death of Jesus is said to be the source of all peace, any peace there could ever be, that will be worked out until the end and finally revealed when God makes everything right, was won at the cross. He reconciled all things to himself at that point. There's no other basis for peace. So look back at the verse one more time. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In one sense, this is a statement of the gospel if you think of it objectively. You lay down your rebellion. You accept God's diagnosis about your condition. You realize that you're a sinner and separated from God, and then you place your trust in Christ. You rely on him for forgiveness and there is, in that way, the establishment of peace between your soul and God. But that doesn't mean you always feel peace at every moment. Your heart may still be in turmoil and will be in turmoil as you go through this world for various reasons. They may be things outside of you, troubles may mar your experience in life, the death of loved ones, the loss of jobs relationships that go sour and are difficult to be dealt with, wandering children, whatever it is, you go through experiences where you don't feel at peace inside. It may be of things going on inside of you related to this where you don't feel that God is acting towards you in a way that you think he ought to, that, that something tells you he should. You don't experience peace inside. And, and the verse tells us why this is, that we don't always experience peace. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. The fact is, our faith, unlike God's work, is not perfect. Our faith either rests wholeheartedly on God and his peacemaking work, or we only rest ourselves a little bit and don't trust him enough. But this says, no, this is given to those who trust in you, whose mind is stayed on you. You see, it's like, Peace comes into our experience when there's a connection between what God says is true and our faith. God says peace has been established by the cross. When our faith rests on that, when it intersects with that, perfect peace is found. So the fault on our side is on our side. It has to do with resting on Christ. And I can't tell you how to experience that peace perfectly because it's not like a medication you can give that makes a person better. It's more a process that the Christian life involves. For example, one of the most important aspects of experiencing peace is worship. I don't mean worship just like we're doing now, though I do mean that. I mean worship as bringing your heart to God, whether it's in private or in public, and seeking from God's word to know what he wants for you, and then coming to him and struggling through what that means and trying to apply it. It's like a daily practice of doing what we're doing here in a small way by yourself. And then it's also meeting in groups or meeting here where you're doing the same thing. That is, we come to God through his word and through prayer, and we seek to bring our heart into his presence to experience what he has for us. And he uses that over a long period of time as we engage in it and choose to not walk away from it. He uses it to draw us towards him and to give us a deeper sense of his purpose and of his peace. It's found in things like the Lord's Supper, which in one sense is just an application of the word of God in prayer, where we come to God and he gives us this tangible sign of his word. My body was broken for you, my blood was shed for you, and we take it in our hands. And it becomes an act in which we're reminded of this truth and we can Over time, enter more deeply into it. And it comes about through the relationships that we have with other Christian people as we develop those. But it doesn't happen automatically. It happens as we seek to, to bring God's word to bear on our lives, and we seek to trust that that is true, not just as a general truth, but that is true in our own experience. Most of you know that my brother died last month. It's been very difficult, and I appreciate people's support with it, but it's been very difficult because my my brother was the one person in our family who seemed to exemplify my family for generations. My family, as, as far as I can know back, it has been kind of vaguely religious. But it seems to have been, at least I can only speak for myself, I know for me it was just kind of a a way of of doing what I called moral conformity, of thinking that well, if I'm doing basically what God wants so he must accept me, that sort of colored our family, but God has made no had no real substantial uh, purpose in the lives of anyone in my family I'm I'm aware of. I remember that my father was at one point visibly angry when I became a Christian and I didn't come home and blast it at all, but I made it clear that I had trust in Christ, and I know why he was angry. He was angry because one of the, the, part of the ethos of my family is, don't let religion get out of hand. And I had done it. I let religion get out of hand. My brother, unfortunately, had no discernible, even spiritual interest, but he was a very good person. I just think at his funeral, the men who came, and women, who came from his shop, he sold our father's business shortly before he died. In fact, his son noted that he died, Went downhill immediately after that. It was like the last big thing he had to do. And all the people from his business came to the luncheon and and I talked with them, and they told me what a good man he was. And I remember when my father died, the same thing happening. He was a he was a good man. People saw him as a good man. I don't know anyone's destiny. I don't even pretend to do that. I only know what the gospel says. It tells us what our real condition is and what the real solution is. And I have no certainty that my brother ever understood that. And by the time he told us he was going to die, it was so far advanced that he was never really conscious and communicative enough to talk to him again. Don't misunderstand. I don't feel guilty. I had talked to him before. It's not that it was my responsibility, but I feel sad. And you know what part of what I feel is? I just don't understand it. Why did it have to be him? The one person who really had, wouldn't talk about God. My sisters at least will talk about God. I don't feel loved by God when I stop to think about it. It just doesn't seem like that, that should have happened. I don't want to. Happen. I don't feel angry particularly, but I, I don't feel like that is the way I wanted to be loved in life. But here's the truth, and I know It's true. God proved his love at the cross. And he doesn't ever have to do anything for the rest of my life to prove it again. He proved his love at the cross, and I don't need to question the depth of God's love. But I do need to try to bring my soul in line with what he says is true to experience peace. And I I tell you, that's what the struggle is in this world. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's seeking to intersect our faith with the truth that God gives to us in his word. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God, we thank you for the freedom that we have to come into your presence. We thank you that you are the God who, as it says, God who did not spare his own son. How will he not with him freely give us all things? In other words, He has shown the supreme act of love. You you have done that. There's no way that we could demand that you show it to us again. We can only look back to that and say that if that's the way you love us, then we need to get in line with that. And so we look to these words, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And each one of us, in whatever way we feel, we pray that you would help us to bring our minds, our hearts to be stayed on you. I pray for those who are struggling here in this room, including myself, that you would take away whatever rebellion or anger that we can feel at times when things don't go the way we think they should, and you would replace it with a calm and settled sense that you who take care of all things that happen, you are not beyond or outside of whatever it is we face. And this promise still holds true. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind has stayed on you. And it's true because of the cross. And we thank you for that. Jesus' name.